Hey, welcome to another episode of Cloud and Culture. I am Derek Harris from VMware. And I'm Danielle Burrow from VMware. This week, we're speaking with Sean Anderson of VMware Tanzu Labs, who helped create the SWIFT methodology. SWIFT comprises a series of processes that help teams get started on modernizing a complex monolithic application in a matter of days. He walks us through some of the steps in the process and shares best practices for organizations looking to make the move to modern architectures. This is the first in a series of podcasts we're going to publish around the modernization process using Swift, along with some best practices and patterns that Tanzu Labs has established for different industry verticals. So without further ado, here's Sean. So Sean, thank you so much for being here today. Can you go ahead and introduce yourself and just give us a little bit of background and tell us what you do here at VMware Tanzu Labs? Sure. Yeah, I'm Sean Anderson, and I'm a principal architect on the Tanzu Labs delivery team. And my role typically has to do with software modernization and getting complex workloads to the cloud, which is another way of saying try to help customers take advantage of the really nice functionality that we get from the cloud platforms. And and as part of that, obviously, I think people are familiar with Labs, might have heard of the Swift methodology, but can you, and I know that's a, that's, that's a big part of how I think right labs helps get people to take advantage of these cloud architectures. So, so can you walk through the, the Swift methodology for folks who are unfamiliar with it? Sure. I'll, I'll give you a, a high level overview and then we can be happy to dig into more detail, but essentially the reason why Swift was created was because getting complex applications or complex systems onto another platform is challenging, especially when you think in terms of if you're going from a different technology to the cloud like mainframe, for example. So how do we how do we figure out how and what to to get from point A to point B? And often these complex workloads are things that you can't just containerize and move to the cloud, right? It's it's uh, it's it's a little bit more complex than wrapping something up and and migrating it. So so what Swift does is starting with event storming, which is something we did not invent. Alberto Brandolini started with event storming as a way of getting kind of an idea about how how systems interact and how business events are happening from, uh, you know, the business context of your system. And what what we found when I was trying to do event storming to understand, you know, the complexities of some of these systems is it, it just kind of left us wanting. At the end, it was, okay, we understand a bunch of business events, but that really doesn't help. We can't code yet. We can't figure out how do we actually responsibly get some of the functionality that lives on a legacy system to run in the cloud. And it was a good start. And so what we figured out was really what we're trying to do with Swift is understand how the system wants to behave from a business perspective. And that's that's a different approach than just saying, let's take a technology first approach. And so Swift goes through a process of event storming to kind of understand more of what the service candidates are, what are the pieces of the system. I kind of look at it the same way of, you know, if you have a teenager with a messy room or you're trying to clean out your garage, it's a lot easier to understand a little bit about the buckets that you're going to be putting things into and start approaching it that way than just to madly 
start moving things around. And so understanding how the system wants to behave helps us go to the next step, which is the Boris exercise, which is where we start to model the system, not from modeling your existing system, but more modeling from the business perspective. You know, the the software wants to behave a certain way to enable the business. And that's ultimately what we're trying to do. And with Boris, we're able to model that and test it and, and see that, oh, okay, it makes sense to organize things a certain way. And then from that, we continue digging down into more detail about what technical patterns, how are we going to actually start coding and so forth. But in the end, going from event storming to Boris to Snappy, which I'm happy to explain a little bit more as well, we can go in a matter of a week or two from not understanding the business at all to having a really good notional architecture, any direction to, to take as you're modernizing your software. I had this visual of like, you know, Marie Kondo or these other like home organizing <laughs> reality shows of like, first you got to pull everything out and then you got to like figure out what category it goes into. And then you got to decide what you want it to look like. Sounds like that's kind of what you're doing here with monoliths. <laughs> it, it, it really is. So, and it, it's a great analogy too, because a lot of what people do typically when they're trying to modernize is they'll look at their environment and say, well, show me your code first, right? The engineering first approach. Let me look at your code. Let me look at your mess. And what you really understand when you do that is, well, now I know how things evolved into something that needs to be modernized, but it doesn't help me. And also people will point out, well, if we understand that, we could figure out what needs to be removed. And in the case of Swift, we really are looking at things like, well, does this part of the system bring you joy? <laughs> and if it does, then that's something valuable. And it probably is a first class citizen architecturally in your system. And that's something that we should look at prioritizing to modernize first as an incremental modernization. Makes it a lot less overwhelming for sure. I was going to say, I envision going through event storming and, and the Boris and seeing the, the, the ideal system and the, and, and, the, and, and the events and the pieces and the capabilities that you that you would that you would ideally want and then going into the code going and all this extra stuff <laughs> like, <laughs> hack it off <laughs> so yep right. yeah, um, what's interesting about that too i'll just make a, a note of it is often there's an assumption when we go into this that the the customer or whoever owns the system has in, intimate knowledge about the system and actually it's usually not the case right we know just a little less than they do because they've been focused on one area. <laughs> can can you walk through quickly too? I'm a I'm a newbie into some of the labs processes, so I always like to learn how does so, so how, how does all this re, um, relate to domain driven design, which which I see pop up and I hear about, but like what are the connections between maybe especially Ben Stormer and Boris and and domain driven design? <clears throat> yeah, that's a good question, and there's actually two ways of looking at the answer, and I'll tell you. In, in one case, when I've gone through this process, the customer had no idea what domain-driven design was, which was okay because ultimately a good architecture should be understandable without having to read a, you know, a book on theory of designing systems. And in this particular case, as we went through and did event storming to understand how these clumps of business events started to relate to themselves. Like in this particular case, it was requesting a, a credit card 
for a financial services company. And we started to see that these business events, there's a bunch of things around the application itself. And then there was a bunch of things around business events, around decisioning, and some around you know, doing credit checks. And as we went through this process, those clumps became logical domains for their system, something that made it like, well, hey, it's obvious we have this perspective or this domain that managing everything to do with collection of data for the application itself. And in the end, it was it it was more like, yeah, this is good. We really like the way this evolved. And we could say, surprise, you just did domain-driven design. And in other cases, we've started out with, if people understand the idea of organizing things into business domains, it makes it easier to to organize your, your pieces of your distributed system around the common functionality that it, that it has. So from my perspective, I, I prefer to think of, we're not trying to do domain-driven design, but more of we're trying to validate that your business, which already has domains, really wants to behave in this this particular manner. So it's more of, to me, it's validating that domain-driven design makes sense because it solves a business problem, not just because it's a, you know the new hotness out there. And I imagine when you're, you know, looking at business events and trying to re-architect a system in a way that delivers on these business outcomes or specific goals. I imagine defining what those goals are up front is important. So how did how does that kind of play into this whole process? How do you get everyone on the same page about what you're actually designing for? Or is that usually just so obvious and not <laughs> is that ever contentious? <laughs> Maybe I'm well, yeah. Yeah, actually it's a really good question because part of part of the process that we're doing with with Swift is not just saying here's here's a good architecture for you to follow, you know, more of a technology approach. It's really trying to gain consensus and understand the nature of the problem you're solving because sometimes the the team that we're trying to help has a mandate that says you need to get to the cloud for some arbitrary reason. And they don't really understand the benefits of that. And in that case, going through Swift and talking through thin slices of functionality and tying those back to problems or pain points that came up in event storming helps get that general consensus where people, regardless of which disposition they, they are looking at their system from, they, they start to see, ah, okay, now I see this makes sense. I'm a business owner and I see that now I can get new functionality out the door quicker and stay competitive. That same benefit is something an engineer developer can see that hey I can I can be working on just my little piece of code and know that it's not going to impact anybody upstream or downstream so I could be much more efficient and by going through this process we not only come up with a notional direction it's not set in stone it's more of a we've narrowed the aperture enough to know that we don't want to go south we should kind of aim northish but it also helps us you know gain that confidence and know that hey, we're we're actually solving a business problem we're not just doing cool software which i think is a piece that that people miss is that tie between you know the problem you're solving and you know that there's multivariate problems that different people care about yeah i wanted to ask if this if if engagements are usually kicked off around 
like like business business problems or so you know or if it's a, if a software and technical debt problem or what is the like like, like who's the driver what's the driver yeah. for this i mean because they're not mutually exclusive obviously but i'm, I'm curious right. right yeah it it's it's varied by by customer and by project sometimes it's hey we just we have this huge mainframe system and we are just paying through the nose for this mainframe and we we want to consider that technical debt we want to get off the mainframe and that's a little bit different problem than we have you know we've got a good product where we're selling things but our competition is lean and agile and we can't keep up with them you know it takes us three months or four months to get something out the door when they're able to get something out every week and and usually it's a combination of those two because as you can imagine, if things are running on the mainframe and you have 30 years of technical debt with your, your system, not, not that mainframes are bad, but the software grows over time, the, the problem is you can't get things out the door quickly and it's expensive. And so we try to look at which approach fits the customer, but we see it from both directions all the time. Yeah, and I imagine this type of work is probably done you know, after the easy modernization work is done, quote unquote easy, you know, maybe all the lift and shift work is done and then people are realizing they really have to look at these systems that they've not really wanted to look at because this work is so hard. I mean, is that, does that ring true? Or are you finding that, you know, folks are just a different process, you know, approaching modernization in different ways? Some aren't maybe going to the easy stuff first and some are. Yeah, I think it's it rings true, and it's it's kind of a combination. Often, when people are test driving, you know, the cloud, for example, or they're looking at building distributed systems, sometimes they don't know why they're doing it. Right? There, it's like, well, people have said, you know, we should get to the cloud, and it's it's kind of like, well, why? I'm not sure what that what that buys me, and so. Often what people will do when they're in that kind of kick the tires phase is let's look for the lowest hanging fruit. What is the simplest thing we can put in a container, run on the cloud, and see that we can gain those tactical efficiencies, right? We have that observability and things like that, but they're often not the not the workloads or the applications that run the business. And the applications that tend to be the most strategic at companies often are the most monolithic and the, you know, the biggest pigs, so to speak. And in that particular case, you know, they'll usually do the learning process of doing the easier applications just to become comfortable with the process, right? And then they can attack the ones that actually bring them that strategic value. But it's really hard to do that first because usually those complex run your business type of mission critical applications also have a lot of internal politics associated and team structures and processes and we try to address a lot of that during Swift too. So, I mean, you just mentioned team processes and structures. That, that reminds me of, I guess, the one thing I've heard about several times. I, I, I've heard of Conway's law, but then the, over the past several months, I kept hearing about the reverse or the inverse Conway maneuver. Is that kind of it? Like, you're, so hopefully you're coming out to say, okay, we're going to rebuild the system, and maybe our teams are, are going to yeah. structure around that. Right. So the the reverse Conway maneuver or inverse Conway maneuver really is 
is what we're not, we're not trying to break Conway with Swift. We're really just saying, yeah, I know Conway exists, but tell me how your system wants to behave, not tell me how your system behaves today. And that's a really good point because if you look at how the system behaves today, you're more likely to keep that Conway, the, I don't know, it's the Conway effect, keep that in place because you see, hey, teams are structured this way. The software evolved as a result of how the team was structured. So it must be there for a reason. And what we do is give them the opportunity to say, you know what, if you if you started building software where software didn't exist before, like banks, for example, existed long before software supported them. So how are those teams organized to support the business? And once you start to understand that, that gives you that how the system wants to behave view and it breaks Conway, right? Because you're thinking in terms of those domains or those capabilities and you're thinking less about who's doing the work. You're going to do that, but you kick it down the stack a little bit further. So, Sean, I had a question about event storming and and what Swift and event storming look like these days. You know, during the pandemic, we're not getting into a room with the customer and sticking post-its on a whiteboard. So how how are your teams executing on these types of engagements? And, you know, are there any techniques or approaches that have evolved because, you know, we're having to use remote tools? Yeah, well, actually, originally, things like event storming and, and the rest of Swift work really well in person. But what we found is using collaboration tools like Zoom and Miro, for example, give us a lot of the same results. And in some cases, it makes it better when we're doing Boris, for example, it's a little bit easier for everybody to see what's happening. In the case of event storming, it can be a little more challenging, just because part of Part of what we're doing with event storming and then Boris is getting that ubiquitous language, trying to get everybody involved, right? The tools make it easier to do that, but when you're trying to collaborate with everybody, the facilitation methods have evolved to, you know, do a little bit more shorter kind of sessions with event storming and poking and prodding people as opposed to expecting the conversations to happen dynamically. But overall, once we start doing Boris and Snappy and, and the technical patterns, it, it, we found that we've evolved the process enough that it actually ends up being easier in some ways with the collaboration tools because we can take an entire whiteboard of stickies and copy it and then start doing some other things without losing what we did before. And I, I kind of feel like this is going to be the wave of the future, at least, you know, going forward, just because of the successes we've had with kind of changing the facilitation methods. I remember being at Microsoft, got a long time ago on Microsoft HQ, and they were going through like the, yeah, like these interactive whiteboards, basically. And I think they're finally, maybe now companies are starting to roll them off. Yeah, this is the idea of like having a digital whiteboard that you could use and actually capture stuff. And not, yeah, the, the sticky notes is <laughs> always like, it makes sense. But also, yeah, it's not something or, or drawing even, you know, drawing out the diagrams and taking pictures. It's like, well, okay, but like, it's, yeah, it's just, yeah. it's a weird thing. It seems like the technology should be there to, to modernize that. But, um. and, and it's getting closer too, because what we found like with Boris, for example, that tends to be that notional architecture that people, point to like literally as they're describing amongst their teams that, oh, here's how things behave. Or if you have a 
a thin slice of functionality is really just a walk through that model to exercise it, to make sure that Boris model kind of holds water essentially. But we found that people really like to be able to visualize it and point to it. And in person, people had bulletin boards with the Boris and they would stand up there and, you know, do that sort of thing. But now we're seeing people are collaborating the same way where they're essentially doing like the bouncing ball demo through your system, but they're using the collaboration tools to do it, or they're copying and, you know, copying the Boris model. And then they're doing the, what if, what would happen here? What would happen there? And it makes it a lot easier than moving stickies. So it's, it's, yeah, it's collaboration 2.0 and you can sell your stock in 3M sticky notes now. <laughs> I just packed up my junk drawer. so many sticky notes. <laughs> How much time have we used those yet? They're five years old. The, so I wanted to ask too, like, in terms of, we talked about like, you know, some companies or some orgs just want to move to the cloud, right? And that's a destination. And, it, you know, sometimes maybe it's a, they don't even know why they're doing it. Are there other, but, but are there technological or platform outcomes or, or, or things you're trying to so I'm getting at is what, what is it what is a typical when you after you re-architect and re-platform these things like what does that typically look like I mean is there a move to get people into microservices onto Kubernetes like or is there a or is I'm just curious how prescriptive that part of the the process is in terms of like where does this actually where is this actually hosted in the end or how is it actually architected <clears throat> Yeah. So when we first start out the process, we're purposely being, I guess I would say, platform agnostic. You know, we're figuring out how the system really wants to behave. That gives us enough information to say, okay, now that we see it wants to behave this way, how do we how do we figure out how to make the platform take advantage or, you know, be able to take advantage of the platform that we're going to deploy to? And more often than not, the way these big complex systems want to behave are essentially as distributed systems. And distributed systems then makes it easy to say, hey, this particular domain or capability has certain behaviors that we've already modeled with Swift. And part of Swift, actually, uh, there's several flavors of Boris, one of which is Boris for infrastructure. And that's way we could map the behavior of the business functionality to the application components, how they would be living on a platform. So as an example, hey, I've got this, I talked about the application functionality, maybe that's a bad word to use, but you know, credit card application, that, that microservice that may be controlling that, we have an idea that that one's hit pretty heavily, it needs to scale, it has this data that it's responsible for. Now let's map that out to how this fits on Kubernetes. This is a pod that requires this kind of network infrastructure for the APIs, here's the ingress, here's the egress. And it's much easier because we're just repeating the same process for each of those core capabilities or domains. But the patterns and the techniques we do that for are are the same. And so in the end, you get this model of a distributed system, how it really wants to be deployed to take advantage of the platform. And it kind of ties all of that together. So the goal is to not have 
a platform team come in and terraform something and then we need to fit the application to fit what was laid down it's more of hey here's how the application wants to behave can we make the the platform fit that as best we can with everything from the observability to the you know the the networking and security models and when we've gone through that process it works well because we're actually modeling or testing our model before we have to build it and it takes you know a couple hours so you're not wasting a lot of time. You're just saying, for a couple hours, let's model this out. And now let's set up our scripts to be able to just, you know, lay it down. And it, it makes, for me anyway, it makes it much easier. How the platform systems that have come out over the past, I mean, I could say the past decade, I guess, Cloud Foundry probably maybe starting. And then and then obviously Kubernetes now being probably the more the more default choice for a lot of orgs. But like, how has that changed the idea of building out these distributed systems because I'm, you know, like th- that was not, I don't know, I would say it's easy now, but it, it was a, probably a lot more difficult prior to some of the, these things coming along, right? Yeah. When what's, what's interesting is my, my background, I did a lot with distributed systems when they first started coming out and then a lot of J2E app server type of work. And the parallel I look at it as if you're a web logic or a web sphere type of person, you're still thinking of building like EJBs or you're building components, but the app server itself is the equivalent of the Kubernetes platform where it's trying to give you, here's all the resources, here's, you know, here's how you access your data. I'm going to manage network for you. But the difference was it wasn't distributed at all. It was you know, you've got like a distributed architecture inside of a big monolithic system. And so when we started to see things like Cloud Foundry, it made it easier to say, hey, you know what? I don't need an app server anymore. I can I can take my one little piece that was running in the app server and have that as an independent kind of self-contained entity. And it, I think it worked well, but it also was a Pandora's box where, hey, for things to behave well in this new platform, you can't rely on the application server to give you all of this and, and constrain you. You have to think in terms of you've heard of the 12 or 15 factors, right? You know, if you're, if you're putting something in Cloud Foundry or in Kubernetes, or even if you're just running them as a standalone Spring Boot application or a .NET application, you, you have to understand how, how the system is going to be trying to scale you, for example, or how you're going to be accessing the database. And uh, those, those rules now had to be something you don't inherit. And, and that's kind of what, to me, once we started seeing Cloud Foundry, for example, you had to have rules um, to follow to to take advantage of the platform. And Kubernetes is kind of no example. It's a lot of rope to hang yourself with, but 12 simple rules will help you avoid running into the iceberg. You mentioned data a couple of times, and I know we talked to Kevin Murley a, a few months ago about the data transformation work and the data re-architecting work that his team does, In I think, in close collaboration with the kinds of work we're talking about right now with Swift. But I'm wondering if there are any times when you know you map out how the system wants to behave and you're trying not to think about the technology, but you know, does it ever come to a point where you have to rethink you know, your design because of the data gravity situation? Or is it usually worth, you know, making significant changes to the data 
to get the payoff, the ultimate payoff of, of having a fully distributed system? Yeah, that, that's the million dollar question. I think most, if you come from an application development point of view, your application is you've got the presentation, you've got the business logic, and the data is handled by some, you know, somebody else. And, and when we figure out how the system wants to behave, a big part of Swift is talking through the, the data itself, not from the, the database-specific example, but more of this capability needs to be responsible for this. Customer needs to be responsible for customer data. Application, decisioning, they all need to be responsible for their own flavor of data. <clears throat> and what that helps us with is when we're going through Swift, it helps us understand what, it, what are the constraints? Like what is keeping us from getting to this point? And often it is that data gravity, but at least we start mapping out where the data can live in the, in the next iteration. And more importantly, this is the same thing that, you know, Kevin and the data TX team do with Swift as well from a data perspective is once we figure out the landing pad where that data should live, it makes it easier for us to start plotting a course to get that data owned by that particular component and really break that data gravity and, and identify cases where you have business logic in the data or you're doing data migration from point A to point B that really doesn't need to be there anymore. And it, it is tough problems, but the data is, is kind of a cornerstone of all these applications. And if you do one without the other, you know, you're going to be a little better off, but you're not you're not getting the full advantage that you may be able to get to with just a little bit more iteration. Maybe this is you know related or or not, but like the I want to talk to the, because I think there's typically you know some misunderstanding or like like when I hear event driven or event when I start hearing about events and data, I start thinking about multiple different things. There's like there's like the idea of event driven architecture and then there's there's event storming and then there's you know event streaming and then like it's like then it's kafka and then it's RabbitMQ, and then it's all these components and then people start with streaming data which is like another completely different thing in some way so i'm I'm curious like how you when you're talking with organizations and you're trying to explain some of these concepts maybe for the first time like how how do you walk talk through some of the these overlapping or or these these terms and techniques that have they're going to be cut and sliced in many different ways. Right. Yeah. Some of that discussion is what gave architecture a bad name or architects, right? When you're talking about the, you know, I want to do event sourcing or this should be event-based or I want to use Kafka. And and those are more technology solutions first in my mind. And, and what we tend to do, especially with Swift, is we try to ask stupid questions that, that get at how the system wants to behave. And that includes like the event architecture, not the implementation, because when we find out that, hey, the way this system really wants to behave, Kafka is going to be a good solution for it. Is it easier than saying, you know, it's almost like Conway's law again. Hey, I have this technology, make it fit. And it's like, yeah, but we don't need Kafka. It's just small little messages. So as an example, when we're talking through thin slices in Boris, I'll ask questions like, you know, so that really sounds like a state change. Somebody saved their application for a credit card. Is there any other capability that really that cares about that, right? And cross-cutting concerns like, 
you know, analytics or notification or reporting, they, they're probably like, hey, I care. And then so we ask the question, so does it make sense to have the application capability have to have intimate knowledge about everybody downstream that cares about that state change? Or is it easier just to say, hey, application was saved. I'm going to broadcast that. Whoever cares, subscribe to that event. And when we talk through that, we find that it's rare that something like event sourcing, which is where you have to record the state of all of the events for playback, like Kafka pushes, that that tends to be rare. It's almost always, you know, that's a, that's an edge case for a certain part or a certain thin slice. But the rest of your system is is often just broadcast a message, and whoever cares about it, do your work. And, and that's how you actually start to be able to take advantage of the distributed systems, too, because then we'll also ask questions about. So in the future, if you needed to add in another capability that cares about that state, how hard is it to do? And it's like, oh, it's super easy. I could build it all separate and then just subscribe to that same message. And there's no impact upstream or downstream. Yeah, that, that reminds me of when we had uh, did our podcast on moving to the cloud. And 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 choosing your your cloud platform, and it was kind of the idea this idea of people coming with a predetermined notion, or sometimes it sounds like even people come in with that's a predetermined notion, but a like we have a contraction, we have a contract in place with. It was like we have a contract in place with Azure, so we're hosted on Azure. Right? I'm, I'm curious, like how much, like not just not just engineers going, oh, I got an idea for using Kafka, or or how much of it sometimes if you run into the obstacle of, well, we we ideally maybe this is how it looks, but like. Like we have these constraints in place where where we have to, you know, work within a box. Right, right. And sometimes what happens is we'll we'll figure out, you know, it's very notional and aspirational. Here's how the system wants to behave. But then when we look at the constraints and we say, well, to to achieve that, it would be great if we could do this, but we don't have that technology. So we have to do the plan B and then maybe even the plan C. And it part of why I think customers like this process when we're modeling that is we can model the aspirational. And sometimes that gets people to ask, so why are we using, you know, why are we required to use DynamoDB? Can't we use something else or what, you know, and they'll ask that question. And sometimes the answer is because God willed it, so you must. And and then we, it's fine because we can still model it in that case and say, cool, you're still 90% there. And that's infinitely better than where you came from. And so your level of happiness is only slightly less than what it would have been. So, you know, don't let the, don't let perfect be the enemy of done or I don't know that. I think that's the, good enough. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Something. Yeah, like good enough is your happiness level is at 90 and it was at zero. That's good enough. It's pretty darn good in those cases. Yeah. It sounds like an, that sounds, yeah, everything, everything's related. It sounds like an SRE type idea <laughs> too. Like, like 90 right. to five nines, you know, like you, you can probably live with, you, may, you probably live with three and then, and then everyone sleeps easier. So, you know. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, before, before we let you go, Sean, I'm wondering, you know, you've walked us through kind of the first phases of, doing this work, event storming, and then using Boris to really look at very you know specific slices of functionality and kind of re-architect and draft a desired notional architecture. And then what happens after that? You mentioned Snap-E. So mm-hmm. kind of how do you get from that design to actually doing the work? <clears throat> yeah. So so when we're 
essentially what we're doing is each technique we're using we're using that technique to gather information enough to go to the next step essentially and and be organized about it so as we're talking through boris which is modeling how the system behaves based on the information we have is generating a lot of data and that data is everything from here's the data it should be responsible for. Here's kind of APIs. Is it publishing or subscribing events or messages? And as we're talking through that, we can capture that information on a Snappy. And Snappy is actually an acronym. It stands for SNAP, not analysis, paralysis. And the E is enhanced. <clears throat> so really what it is, is it's a shorthand way of per capability or per microservice to identify here's the APIs that need to be exposed for the slices of functionality we talked through. Here's the data that should be responsible for. And then we can look at now we know if I'm a software developer, I have a pretty good idea of I need to start creating a service that exposes these APIs and so forth. But in order to do that, I need to convert that Snappy into a backlog of work. But it's much, much easier to say, here's a sheet that says, here's all the APIs that need to be exposed. Here's maybe some business logic stories and the data, and then create a backlog for that subsection of it. Then it is to say, hey, I did an event storming and I've got all these stickies. Uh, now create a backlog of work, right? So we keep drilling down. And sometimes... What you'll see is there's patterns, technical patterns that say, well, this thin slice said I want to behave this way and I publish out an event because there's a lot of things that care about it. And you start to see that there's technical patterns that you could use to implement that. They, those patterns start repeating themselves even across industries where you're you're seeing, hey, that's an event-based or an event-sourced or this is docket-based choreography. You know, those kind of patterns then get applied too. So when you combine the data on a snappy and technical patterns that gives you a solid backlog to use to start doing work. And then your only step is prioritizing what do you do first? So there's no shortage of work to be done at that point. It's now just let's figure out what needs to be done first. And often that's just a factor of what are your team structures? Who's ready to work? What are your skill sets? You know, what do we want to tackle the toughest problem or do we want to do one small piece first and then, you know, learn from that. So much easier to break those problems into smaller chunks. And then finally, Sean, I just wanted to, I was just curious how long, I don't, I don't think we touched on this, just if, if I'm in an organization, you know, th thinking about engaging and, and going through this process, how long, like the, like the swift framework part of this, right? The actual analyzing and breaking down the app and that thing. I mean, how, how long does that typically take? It typically is is a week to two weeks, you know, depending on depending on the the customers and the the information at hand. But but usually in the matter of just a few days, we can go from I have no idea what your system is to ah, I see kind of how it wants to behave, and we have a good model, a ubiquitous language, and people tend to be in agreement that yeah, this is the way we want to go, and it's in large part because. It's not VMware folks coming in and saying, here's how you need to do it. It's more of you you already have all the answers. You just need somebody who could ask the stupid questions and pull them out, pull those answers out for you. And that's essentially what we're doing. So once it gets going, it's very quick. Yeah, right. it sounds like having really strong facilitators is a huge piece of 
the service that we're supplying here. It is, and 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 it's a and it's an experience based approach too. So the 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 people who have made a lot of mistakes in the past are the ones that can most quickly ask those kind of questions to avoid. Don't do things the way I did in the past. You know, let's let's try to guide you down a path of doing something differently. And, and so that that is kind of a secret sauce of just knowing how to build these complex systems. And then a week or two later, you've got a backlog and you're ready to go. And you don't need that skill set as much at that point. Yeah, you, you, can, you can break it into smaller boxes and say, hey, according to that model, I did it right. And let's, let's just validate that. Great. All right. And that's great. Thank you so much for being here today. We're going to have you on for another uh, podcast to talk a little bit more about some specific use cases across different verticals. So we're really looking forward to those conversations. Thanks again. Thank you. It was great. Looking forward to it.